It's been over a year since my last podcast. I can honestly say it was not meant to be this way. But between work and our DaVinci Resolve Masterclass, I just haven't had free time. But I'm back, and after this two-part series, I've already interviewed another colorist, and that's being prepped for the podcast, and I think I can keep this ball rolling. But first, this week. This week, I'm talking to Benjamin Franklin, the filmmaker, not the inventor. That would be kind of crazy and Anthony Melton. They are the spiritual and physical forces behind the British 13-part horror short film anthology website, bloodycuts.co.uk. Why am I talking to two filmmakers and not two colorists? It seems like a bit of a break from this podcast. It's not. Ben and Anthony are two very courageous filmmakers. After all, they brought me into Color Grade Episode 6 of their next horror short film, It's called Dead Man's Lake. No, that's not why they're courageous. They're courageous because they've allowed me to document every step of the color grading process and then turn it into training. This film was shot on an Ari Alexa. It was recorded to ProRes 444. They used the Ari Log C flat picture profile. That's right, coming in October 2012, you'll be able to color grade this short film from the ProRes camera originals, sitting next to me as we grade to Ben's vision in DaVinci Resolve 9. Is that awesome or what? Dead Man's Lake taps into the fantastically fun horror subgenre, the 1980s summer camp slasher film. It's got Lutz, film grain, shot matching, creating a look, seeing through the slasher's eyes, terrific prosthetic work by the London special effects house Millennium FX. This seven-minute short has it all, including a fun little story twist at the end. In part one of this interview, I talk with Ben and Anthony about the origin of Bloody Cuts, their goal with the anthology series, and some of the original inspiration behind the latest installment. There's a Dead Man's Lake spoiler in here, so you'll probably want to pause and visit bloodycuts.co.uk and watch this short before we start talking about it. In part two of this interview series, it's essentially our post-production conference call about the specifics of the job. I interviewed them before I had started the color grade, and you're going to be hearing the conversation I typically have with my clients uh, when I get ready to start a project, And I thought it would be kind of fun and interesting to share that with all of you. And that's what you'll get in part two. But first, two quick shout outs. A huge thank you goes to Flanders Scientific for coming on board to support the Tau for a second year in a row. They are the official LCD reference monitor for the Tau. They have outstanding customer support. They make great monitors. And you can find a ton more info about them at tauofcolor.com backslash f. S-I. Second, a big thank you goes out to Austin, Texas audio editor and colorist Tom Parrish for editing this podcast. That's right, he's got both eyes and ears. You can find out about Tom at TomParish.com. Now here in part one, I do have to apologize. The initial introductions were completely mangled by Skype, so I'm going to get you up to speed on where we're at in the conversation. 
Ben Franklin is the director of Dead Man's Lake, and he's also the core inspiration of Bloody Cuts and calls himself its showrunner, meaning he keeps the whole operation moving forward. Anthony Melton is Dead Man Lake's editor and also a core creative force behind Bloody Cuts. He's been with Ben from day one and acts as its digital producer. He works on the website, does all the making of videos, design work, copywriting. So the first voice you'll hear after mine is Ben Franklin sharing how Bloody Cuts came into being. Enjoy. This whole anthology series then is, it's just you guys practicing the craft is pretty much what the whole thing is about. Um, so essentially Bloody Cuts started really because uh, there was a bunch of us looking to do more than what we were doing uh, within our working lives. You're working pretty much in corporate video. So um, although you can do some quite creative and rewarding work, uh, it's sometimes quite difficult to really get as much passion into it and to really drive it in the direction that you really want to see it going in. You're always held back by clients and what have you. So we, and we, and we're, much of us are all um, very much into to horror filmmaking and just filmmaking in general. So we thought, well, you know, let's let's take what we've learned from having done things like a 48 hour film project where we kind of were quite enlightened as to how much we could achieve in, in such a small amount of time. And the contacts that we've got, the equipment that we've got, let's kind of take all of those things and put it into something where we can kind of really get behind it and build up a fan base and do something much more than, than you might do with just a single short film. So. We kind of all banded together, uh, came up with the, with the idea of doing the 13-part horror series, which would allow us to tell different types of stories. The horror is great when it comes to kind of subgenres and just the different types of stories that you can tell. It's kind of never-ending. So we knew that it was a good way for us to explore a lot of different story types, different ways of shooting, different types of films where you would have more character-driven pieces, others which would kind of be more more like, you know, almost like a ghost train of kind of constant scares and things. So we um, we, we set about doing body cuts. We set up the website. We shot our first film, which was Lock Up, really pretty much in one evening and Tret as a, as a pilot episode. And we saw that that, you know, that was quite well received. And we thought, well, you know, let's keep going with this. We, we've got some good news in this. So there's clearly something there in what we're doing. Then we went on and did Stitches, which got double the amount of views. And then from then on, it's been it's been very much a kind of incremental thing. We've we've added not only tons more viewers. When you look at Sucker Blood, which is our fifth episode, and the close to 100,000 views that we've had on that, uh, you can see that that's that's grown massively. And there's there's definitely an audience there with it now if we didn't have before, and you wouldn't have had we just done a, a single short film undoubtedly. But also we've obviously attracted more sponsors and supporters like yourself and people who really just want to get involved with it and it's been a great way of meeting people kind of um having something which you know you can you can feel passionate about and that you can almost treat in many respects as a second job equally it works well as a kind of a calling card for what we can do we can kind of demonstrate we can tell different types of stories and even though our films are made on a low budget we're always um, looking to increase production values as much as possible i mean the money that we spend on probably you know on the five or six films we've made so far it, a lot of short films are made, uh, single short films are made made for more than that. So we're, we're able to do quite a lot on very little. And obviously we've got um, big ambitions to go on to do bigger and better things. And that's hopefully where we'll go with it. And this is a good way of kind of setting our stall on on where our talents lie and just what we can do with a low budget. And hopefully, you know, if we were to get a, a bigger budget, we'd be able to go on and do, do even bigger things with that. And yeah, the kind of the sky's the limit in many respects. So 
where I'm kind of just keep kind of uh, bubbling along, just doing these episodes and seeing seeing what happens with it. So yeah. And as Ben was said about the increasing audience, um, along that journey, there's been uh, obviously a massive uh, amount of attention paid to the sort of digital remit that we're kind of, uh, I suppose, launching our films into. And that itself has been a real creative process that kind of goes hand in hand with the launch of the films and the style of the films and I guess the overall brand of, of Bloody Cuts. And so it goes a little bit further than the filmmaking themselves, although they are fundamentally the core of what we do. We have been able yeah. to sort of create this sort of, you know, um, well, we've got we've got a digital following, I think, now, and and kind of we've got we're doing things like podcasts and t-shirts and all that sort of stuff, and it's really grown to a it's a beast of its own right, and it's just been really really super rewarding, and as has has been the uh, support that we've had from uh, you know like folks like yourself and people like Millennium FX, and um, yeah, it's good, it's all good. Well, you know, it's funny because. Uh, you know, one of the things I, I noticed as I'm, I'm watching, you know, through the film anthology, as you as you now come up at the time we're recording the Suck of Blood, the last one that you released. Yeah. And uh, the prosthetics and in, and in uh, you know, Dead Man's Lake. Again, you know, there's a lot of kind of prosthetic work going on there. What's what's up with that? I mean, it's great work. I mean, you guys are doing amazing stuff there. Yeah, we um, after we did the first film, which was Lock Up which, like I said, we pretty much did in an evening. There was very little time spent on pre-production as such. It was kind of like it was an idea. We had an actor. We had a place to film it. And we kind of realised that for all its, its good things, that the probably the weakest part of it probably was, you know, the, the, the killer, the, the, the monster or whatever it was. So we thought, you know, that's obviously a weak area. What can we do to kind of fix that? So I was just on Saturday sat at my computer thinking, you know, who are the guys that we need to talk to and um, found Millennium FX, who are a, a company who have worked on major features. They've worked on pretty much, you look, the, the, you have undoubtedly seen something that they've done. They're also well known for having done all of the stuff in, in Doctor Who, which obviously is a very, very popular series. Oh, wait, yeah. that means I'm now like one removed from Doctor Who? Absolutely. Uh, oh, that's yeah. awesome. <laughs> yeah, well, yeah, and I mean, if, if, I'm not, if, you, if you watch or have seen anything made in Doctor Who in pretty much the last, uh, I don't know, 10 years or so, Neil, who directed Mother Died, he's probably had a hand in that, if not actually been there and made sure, it. Um, talking of hands, just to, just to buy in, one of the coolest things with the Millennium Effects is when we recorded our, uh, our um, GoGo campaign video, we had the actual molded arm from Saving Private Ryan, the guy, the one that at the start in the really intense sequence that the guy kind of drags along after him, his disembodied arm, yeah. and that was in the room. Oh. And that, that was quite a cool moment. Yeah. <laughs> Saving Private Ryan geek, so. Yeah, it's interesting. You walk around their place and you kind of see that they've got a warehouse and upstairs, it's not really like a museum, but you can kind of walk around there and you can see all the things that have been in, you know, various films and TV shows and it's quite interesting and it's really kind of broken down in many respects obviously what goes into making that work and we had no idea what was involved with doing any of that but we just knew it was something that was beyond our skills right. um, and I contacted Neil from Millennium purely out of the blue just to kind of say look we when we were making these films we've made this first film we th really think we could benefit from from this from skills from someone such as yourself but but obviously we respect that you've got a lot of work on have you got any guys there who you know, uh, you know juniors kind of work experience people people who could perhaps come and join the team and and see what we're doing and hopefully get on board with it and neil likes the first film that we did so much that he said well we'll get behind you we'll sponsor you so basically yeah oh, and it's, it's been great because basically what it what it's meant is 
they're very much part of the team now. Um, in yeah. every episode now we make, they're as involved as you know as anyone with it. And obviously, as I said, Neil did Mother Died, and I know he's keen to direct another one. We're looking at doing something much bigger with him as well. They they really love what we're doing, and they're totally behind it. And um, it's been that that's really what's helped us to grow in a big way because we wouldn't have been able to produce half the things that we have done as effectively without them. I mean, we'd have done something. But, you know, it kind of scares me what it is we might have turned out with had uh, we not had their skills on board. So it's good because obviously horror, a lot of horror now uh, uses CGI. And I think CGI is a brilliant thing. Uh, sometimes it gets knocked unnecessarily. It gets compared to too much necessarily to practical VFX because I think that's, there's there's a lot of good things in both of them. Um, but the great thing <laughs> doing yeah, I was saying the great thing with having the practical, uh, the practical effects is that we can um, we can do some proper old school kind of um, you know gore. And uh, Dead Man's Lake is obviously the first one where we've been able to, to really look at doing that. But otherwise, we we have done some kind of quite horrific kind of monsters, and obviously we've done zombies. And um, Zuckerberg has some very stylized looking creatures and stuff. Yeah, and yeah. did you want to add something there, Anthony? Yeah, I was going to just say that it, Ben sort of covered it there, but really in terms of um, like the horror that, that we like, it's definitely the horror that I like. Prosthetics play a, a massive component of that. And I think kind of prosthetics and creature effects and, you know, general like the practical makeup effects really, for me, make horror, the, the, well, make the horrors that I want to watch. I mean, Hellraiser specifically is my favourite horror film and it's got some of the best practical effects, I think, in it. And funnily enough, I think yeah. uh, Millennium FX did have some involvement with the guys that made uh, made um, Hellraiser 2, is that right? Yeah, they did. Yeah, I think, yeah Neil worked on Hellraiser 2. So, um, yeah, there's a long kind of drawn-out history between the stuff that Neil's doing and we want to do and obviously Millennium Effects themselves. So I think that Neil, who is the co-director of Millennium Effects, and he's very much involved in everything they do, he, he um, has been able to see it for him as well as, an, as a chance to kind of, like, step into doing a bit of directing himself. And so they're definitely getting stuff out of it as well. But mostly, you know, if you were to look at the value of what we've had, versus what they've got out of it on i definitely say we're we're doing very well out of it so <laughs> <laughs> well now let's bring this up to sucker blood because uh, clearly that has been a breakout hit for you guys for good reason i mean you know i look at that and my first i was smiling through that entire short the first time yeah. i think ben you had emailed me and said hey uh, yes, yeah. can you throw yeah, this yeah. in the newsletter and you know usually i kind of you know, I sigh and I'm like, all right, let's take a look at this thing. And um, and I was just blown away. And, and you know, a lot of it had to do with the prosthetics. A lot of it had to do with the animation. The animation is fantastic in there. The opening animation is terrific. Yeah, yeah. Um, and it really sets the mood for that piece. And overall, it's just, you know, it's just the perfect cracked fairy tale, you know? Yeah. yeah. Um, and can you talk a little bit about pre-production on that and who used for visual effect, who used for your animation on that? Yeah, Anthony, did you want to take this one? I've obviously done the last two questions. Yeah, I mean, fundamentally with the pre-production of Sucker Blood was mainly uh, the two directors, Ben Tillett and Jake Kudahy, or Jake Hendricks as he likes to be known. They basically took it from script stage up to storyboarding and they really, really kind of owned that project in terms of the theme. But in, in, as, as with all the Bloody Cups films now, we definitely we have several production meetings whereby we talk through the more practical, technical kind of developments that need to be made and put in place for the actual shoot itself. 
So kind of, I guess Ben and Jake kind of really brought something to Bloody Cuts and brought a great idea, but, you know, fantastically, I think the Bloody Cuts then absorbed Ben and Jake into itself <laughs> and it became something completely different. So, yeah, I think kind of that that's generally how how we we worked on sucker blood i mean it's, they're the guys that you really need to get on the uh, get on the phone to talk about that one but i think in terms of then going out of pre-production into the sort of post-production stuff and the animation sort of that's um that's a combination of visual effects and uh perhaps not practical but like um flash-based animation that's then dropped into after effects oh cool uh, that's kind of uh, Ben Tillett worked on that. Uh, Alex Purcell, who's our regular visual effect coordinator, he he worked with us on that one as well. And um, yeah, it's just generally when we get to the sort of post production phase, as you're experiencing right now, it, then the teamwork really starts to happen. And kind yeah, of I mean, all, all the various features, kind of all the various departments, really get involved. It's good. Yeah, I mean, I definitely think that obviously as well as the stuff that Ben and Jake did early on, one thing that you will hopefully have seen in Suckerblood is that the attention to detail obviously is you know much higher probably than there has been before. So in every area, we ha- we held um, pre-production meetings, which I would always kind of drive. I was all- I also found the location. I found Holly, the the, the, the girl. Um, so I was very much involved in that kind of pre-production stuff outside of the concept and the initial story stuff. I was kind of help as, as I always do, you know, making sure that those, those stories are kind of driven through to the actual production stage. And yeah, the attention to detail has been carried right through. Cause if, if you um, look for, look for a moment at say, the costumes, obviously they were all handmade by one of the girls called Charlotte, who works with us who happens to also be my cousin. Um, she, um, she, she's done all of the costumes so far. And she, like I said, she's one of the ones who is a, is a university student studying fashion. So this has been a great way for her to learn um, oh, about terrific. that type of stuff. Yeah, and it's been great for her. Um, but also, you know, the, like I said, the attention to detail, she spent weeks making that costume. And you might only see that for two or three or, or so shots in the film. But it was just one where everybody was just completely on their A game. And even though we had a few issues on the weekend with generators failing and things like that, we still came away knowing that we'd, you know, we'd done the best possible job. And I think that that kind of shines through to the end piece because even though, you know, it's hard to say anything is perfect, it's about as as close to perfect as that film could have been on the restrictions that we had, obviously, which are mostly financial. But um, we, you know, we did, we absolutely did everything we could to make a really standout piece. Well, you know, and that kind of gets us to the heart of short filmmaking, which is pick your story and tell just that story. And that's one thing you you guys have, have really nailed on every single one of these, including Dead Man's Lake, which is, you know, you pick a kernel and you stick with it. You don't go too broad with it. And I think that's what makes these work. And, and can you talk a little bit about that? You know, how conscious are you yeah. of that? Whenever we've tried to, to work within the restrictions of the, you know, the few minutes of time we set out to make these films in, we realize that there's only so much you can tell within that given time. And even though there's always a tendency to try and do more and to really push the boundaries of that, you know that people want to come away with, with something, something rewarding at the end of the few minutes they spend online, whether it's on YouTube, Vimeo, or anywhere. You know, they want if, they, if people are going to land upon our films, they're not. People just generally aren't going to going to be in the mindset where they're going to be sit there and watch for half an hour or so. I think that the people who find our films want to be scared and they want to be brought into the the world that you imagine 
as quickly as possible. So we're very conscious about trying to capture things which will keep people wanting to watch. So whenever we pick a story, we're very conscious of, of you know, things like horror cliches and the tropes of horror and things that, although they may, like I said, say, seem to be cliche, it's a good it's a good thing for us to pin our, pin our stories on because there is that instant, you know, kind of recognition of people know what the, what it is they're watching. They don't have to sit for any uh, inordinate amount of time to try to kind of work out what's going on in the story. They instantly say, oh, this is the film about this or this is the film about that. And, you know, you at least get in the mood or you at least have some kind of intrigue as to where it's going. I mean, Mother Died is very much about the twist, but what we did with that is we immediately set the film off in a kind of a, a bizarro world where you see the daughter killing her mother with a, you know, a kind of a hatchet across the neck. And it's that type of thing, you know, it's trying to get people in immediately. And it, obviously it does get easier as it goes on because you know that people who will have watched your previous films will probably watch the new ones, but you still need to ensure that you you really make sure that world that you create is, is one that people want to stay in. And I think one thing with Sucker Blood, which is kind of, makes it a little bit to the exception to the rule when it compares to the other films is that it's very much a broad um, appeal, that film. So I think anybody up from 10, 11, 12 years old could probably watch that as long as they, you know, they don't mind a bit of kind of like PG gore. Yeah. Um, because I think that it's, it's set within that kind of like fantasy fairy tale kind of world, which everybody knows through Grimm's fairy tales. And, you know, it's got that kind of Dr. Seuss kind of, style voiceover it's got it's a rhyme it's got quite a lot of things which would appeal to people from the get-go and it's kind of got that overbearing kind of gloomy kind of gothic tone to it and obviously again you know the, the people people love that kind of thing because it's kind of harks back to the you know tim burton-esque filmmaking and i think for, for us that film is very much the exception in, in many respects because that's going to be one where you are going to have an audience who, outside of the horror realms that we make our films in, are probably going to find that quite appealing. Whereas I think Dead Man's Lake is one where we consciously said, right, let's make a film now, which is very much a horror film. You know, it is something that um, it does it does harken back to those 80s films, you know, at least capture some spirit of those kind of summer-based horrors where, you know, teens would do something stupid in the woods or by the lake or, you know, it, it at least tries to capture some of that essence and we kind of tried to bottle that up and make that something which is going to appeal to that audience rather than perhaps the more broader audience that likes Suckerbud. So it's a bit of a dangerous move because it means that we potential, potentially uh, lose some people or it could, you know, it could open up the net even wider. So it's just, again, it's another chance for us to experiment with what we're, what we're doing in filmmaking. And can you talk a little bit about where Dead Man's Lake came from? Well, uh, yeah, well, Joel is another of the guys uh, who's very much involved with what we're doing. He has been, you know, itching to have one of his his own self written stories for ages, um, and because he is a writer first and foremost, and he's a very good writer. Um, and previously, he'd worked on stuff with me and with a couple of other guys, but he'd never had something made which had been his own piece of writing. And we'd both been kind of mulling an idea of doing something which should be a slasher film, but would do something a little bit different. And I was, I think, I was just, for me, obviously, one of the things that kind of hooks people into watching our films or continuing to watch them is knowing that there might potentially be that kind of Tales from the Crypt or Twilight Zone style twist ending. And so I started kind of backwards with the story and thought, well, what if we set the story about this man and kind of tell it, you know, tell it somewhat um, out of order in a way that kind of makes you feel like you're watching some one film, but you're actually watching something which is a story about you know, it, it's just, it's kind of like slightly distorting the perspective of the story. So I, I came up with the end. I worked backwards from that. I knew I wanted to something in the summer, which 
didn't turn out to be a good idea at the time because it pretty much rained all weekend. And I wanted to do something which was going to evolve a serial killer-esque kind of slasher character and, and, you know, do it in a kind of a British way, which would, you know, again, like I said, harken to those um, classic American 80s slasher films that many horror fans love. So it was kind of my idea and I gave it to Joel and Joel then kind of ran with it and that's where, you know, the story then developed and as, as it went on, me and Joel spent time kind of going backwards and forwards on the script, just kind of really kind of honing it in and trying to perfect it as much as possible. As it turned out, the film, you know, was shot as per the script, even though, like I said, the weather was, it was pretty much terrible all weekend. I mean, I think that hopefully hasn't come across too much in the edit, but if you've looked through the rushes, Patrick, you will have seen there was times when it was torrential rain and we had, we had to deal with that all weekend to the point where at one point in the film we completely changed location. Again, I hope that's not too noticeable. <laughs> it's but, not at all. You, yeah. you guys hit it very well. Within the attack scene, the, we actually completely changed location and we shot the rest of the film in my parents' back garden. So um, Ah, that's why, that's why that, the ultimate shot there uh, was a green screen shot. When yes. He, okay, yes. all right, because you changed locations. Because we had to change locations, so okay. uh, we, yeah, so we had to go back and shoot at the plate shot of the lake, and then obviously use the green screen. And um, I don't know if you've seen the we've done a, a kind of a pre-comp, or, or Anthony has and that shot is actually actually looks really good. It um, does. That was in the latest yeah. cut, right? That was yeah, it yeah, was, yeah, yeah, yeah. I saw that. Yeah, I watched it last night. Yeah, so um, that's a hurdle we've never had to to cross before, and I think that. Again, that was something that kind of tested us as a team because we knew that on the Sunday morning we wanted to go back to our film location. It had been completely rained off and we couldn't actually get our vehicles over there. So we thought, well, what do we do now? And then looked out the, the, uh, the, into the garden and thought, well, let's film it there. So, um, <laughs> so, so, so that's, that, that's what it became. And um, the, 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 the part of the, the uh, skill to that day was making sure we filmed as much as possible of the film at a certain angle so we didn't actually show that in the reverse angle my parents kind of driveway with about 10 cars were sitting there so i think we managed it and hopefully you know that doesn't that doesn't come across in the final piece it does not i i watched it last night in fact i airplayed it onto my big plasma tv and yeah and uh i didn't get that at all so we'll right. see what happens once I start grading it. <laughs> yeah. uh, no, I, th well, I think that's interesting because with all the, the technical challenges and the weather challenges that we had over the weekend for Dead Man's Lake, um, obviously we've shot around it and I think you know, in a raw kind of fashion everything looks good. But I really think that the, the, the craft of making, of selling Dead Man's Lake into an audience is going to come from the, the grade very much. And I think kind of it, 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 looks, it looks fine at the moment with the um, out-of-camera grading, but once we start to kind of really get get deep into making that look absolutely period really 80s get some grain in it everything will will just it, it will just it will just transform ah. again because at the moment every step it's been like first edit yeah sequence is there bring a bit of uh temporary sound effects in all oh, that that works a little bit put some temporary music in all oh, that works a little bit more and then you get the score in and everything builds and builds and builds and just it's it's really it's really interesting to see how you know Obviously, the, the our films are kind of built from the ground up in that respect in the edit, and and uh, it's really really wonderful when you start to get the the, the correct score in and the ADR in. It's like we, we've made a film. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so you know, you guys go through that as well. I mean, I imagine every filmmaker goes through that where you, yeah, you look yeah. at the rough edit and you're like, really, this is what I've got, and yeah, then you absolutely. start layering yeah. everything on top of it. 
Yeah, my heart sinks. My heart sinks every single time I look at uh, a, f- a first edit of one of our films because without the music in and the sound effects and stuff, it just—it's nothing. It's just a flat piece of work which you've got no idea of, of you know whether it's working or not. And it's not until you add, you know you add in the sound effects, you add in a bit of the score, which kind of then starts to kind of like incite the the audience towards the, the, what they should be feeling at that given time. And it's it's making those things work and you know crossing all of those those post-production hurdles that you have to come up with, you know, with, you know, VFX or, or, or grading or whatever it is. And it's not until you get that that complete jigsaw of all the components that you really know how good your film is, I think. And then before we start talking about the grade itself, um, do you guys go through a dialogue edit as well as a mix? Or is that all handled all at once? Um, uh, in terms of the audio? Yeah. Um, well, so we've obviously re- uh, re-recorded all the ADR. Unfortunately, we we had a massive. I'm not going to name who who it was, although you probably watch the end credits and find out who it was. On the on the day when we shot it, the person recording the sound forgot the sound equipment. Um, which, yeah, <laughs> that's which is yeah. For all of the things that you can set up and you can organise, um, there's certain things that you can't fix when you're on location when you haven't got a sound, you know, the sound equipment. And obviously, that is what you do with recording the sound. So we had to kind of like um, it, we had we had a Zoom recorder which we could obviously use as a reference, which was handy. And we had um, I've got a small kind of Rode top mic thing that you attach to your DSLR. And we, we hooked those up together. He basically then found a stick in the woods and attached attached the microphone <laughs> to the stick and used it as a boom. And it was quite, it, it was embarrassing, <laughs> and I had to keep telling the actors this this you know this is this isn't normally what we do. Um, and and uh, yeah, fortunately uh, we did get some reference audio, but the audio that we recorded is pretty much unusable. So what's happening at the minute is Anthony's going through, he's laying down all of the re-recorded um, audio, which I've done this week with the actors. That in itself has been tricky, but I think that we're we're not too far off from it now. So that needs to be mixed properly. We will go through the final sound mix with the um, the guy who did the sound mix on Sucker Blood, who did it called Phil Lee, a company called Eel Audio. He, he did an absolutely brilliant job of mixing that all together and making those thunderstorms really crack and that the house really have a kind of feeling of it yeah of that, that had a character. great had a great soundtrack that that yeah yeah, I mean, yeah the whole thing. He, thank you and um he's going to be doing the same on dead man's lake so uh, at the minute anthony's dropping in the adr um we've got someone sound designing the film for us because the sound mix that that you've got on there is really reference only um so so when he's done the sound design which will have to be done in the next few days we'll we'll grab all that together package up all of the adr stuff which will, will have been synced to the film or has already been synced to the film. And that will then go over to Phil to kind of work his magic and really kind of bring that all to life. So, um, and there's obviously, we've now got all the pretty much the music from the composer um, in the film. So again, that's been another element that we've had to organize and introduce. And fortunately, the last two composers that we've worked with, which you know I have to say is the first time we've really worked with composers because otherwise we use library music, have both completely understood what we were going for and have really captured the feeling and uh, of the films we wanted, and um, that it's been an absolute pleasure working with them. And um, again, it, it's a it's a component that if you don't get that right, that can obviously ch- you know change the 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 final piece. And I think we've been quite fortunate that we that, that we've had people who've understood what, what we're trying to do. Same as yourself, obviously, you know you recognise that 
we do have some low budget restrictions, but um, that there's um, there is some promise in, in what we're all trying to achieve. And if you can uh, if you can get in on that, and you can you know you've got the same kind of mindset that um, that you know, you can really put all that passion into producing something which he could be quite proud about. Yeah, that's exactly right. I mean, that's why, you know, I, I saw Suck of Blood and I go back and watch your earlier films. I'm like, these guys know what they're doing and, and they've got, you know, and, and I'm sure, you know, a lot of people like me who are contributing a lot of time and energy just to be part of something cool and, and that's yeah. going to look good yeah. and that you can showcase your work. And, um, and, you know, yeah, absolutely. you know, most of us don't do that very often. Uh, you know, the constraints of, you know, paying a mortgage or paying your rent. But, you know, you got to make time in your life to every now and then just do something for fun. Yeah, I think so. Yeah. And, 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 and kind of like that's, that is bloody cuts. I mean, it is devoting our lives to doing something fun. It's just I, I think when we started doing it, perhaps didn't realize how much of our lives we would have to devote to it. Fortunately, we've all got understanding girlfriends and wives and stuff. So, <laughs> exactly. Uh, yeah. Exactly. Well, and it's not just doing it fun. It's also about practicing your craft. It's about being able yeah. to do stuff that... You know, it's like, look, this stuff doesn't come into my door every day, so here's an opportunity where I know that uh, I get to practice some of these skills that uh, that you always want to practice. Yeah, I think so, and I think that's again, that's always been the mindset from the start is that we would we would use it uh, as a chance to kind of train ourselves up and hone our craft, like you say, and to 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 really uh, see what our own restrictions were and to to learn. And I think that there hasn't been a film we we've made where we haven't learned a lot from it and. You know, by the time we get to 13, if, you know, maybe we do something before then much bigger, at least by then, there'll be certain things that that we would have probably got in our way when it comes to the, you know, the filmmaking side of things that, that we can hopefully avoid now through having, you know, addressed those issues already through, it might be, you know, stuff which is on set, it might be pre-production or post-production, but it's all just one big massive learning test of learning for us. And it's, uh, unfortunately, because we are only doing it on a low budget scale, there's not a lot of money which is being invested or wasted on it. You know, it's uh, it's something which we have all so far, I think, can say that we've um, we're, we're quite proud of. So, so I now think one of the things with going, you know, going, moving forward with uh, the series is that it it is lots and lots of fun, and and we will really really enjoy uh, you know the filmmaking process. But because we're sort of now backing them up next to each other, there's no we don't really have that much time to, to, to stop, uh, stop, stand back and go, wow, you know, look at the anthology as a whole, because we don't, we, we're just moving to the next project, moving to the next project. So I really like to see it from the eyes of, uh, you know, a, an audience member to see what it looks like as a package. But maybe we'll get to do that when we uh, hit 13, right? <laughs> well, you yeah, know, and yeah. let me ask you this before, because you know, I do want to get to Dead Man's Lake. But the, the one thing uh, I'm curious about is you, you obviously made the decision to go digital distribution before going the film festival route yeah Were, was that something you guys talked about or was it always just assumed we're gonna do these and put them right up on the net uh right away yeah we never really i don't think we never really um knew just how good it was that we we could get with our films um to start off with and we only ever had the intention of doing something which we could put out to an online audience because obviously there is that instant gratification of putting films online and, and being seen and also you know you hear these stories all the time of filmmakers having their work seen by top studio execs and things like that in hollywood and it's the kind of that it's that you know that eternal dream of of getting your work seen and picked up and it going on to bigger and better things. So it was a, it's a good chance of quickly getting things out there and quickly making things happen for us. Um, and also, you know, there's, 
I'd looked online for a good while before um, I started doing a lot of the films that we're doing. I mean, before I really formulated Bloody Cuts to kind of think, what is it that I want to do? Um, and I'd seen things um, made by a guy called uh, Drew DeWaltz, who's a, who makes short horror films. And he's one of his uh, most popular films is a film called Bedfellows, which has got hundreds of thousands of views. And he, um, it's only two or three minutes long. Um, and it's, it's a really freaky little film, which, you know, you can show to pretty much anyone and scare the pants off them. <laughs> and I thought, and I just thought that that's, that's great. You know, that he has really kind of just captured something, just a small scene from a film then. Uh, and that's, that's something which, um, has gone viral and it's, uh, he's used that as a kind of a launch pad to go on to do bigger and better things. And he is, he is directing bigger and better things now. Um, and it's uh, he's he is he himself has been able to engineer his own little kind of short film series as such out of that. I think um, so. So there's that, and um, obviously treating the series for us as well, like um, like a, like a series, like an online series, you know, like a TV series or such. Uh, that people could check in and they could watch the next episode. If they if they joined now, they can see the first five or six we've done. If they come in at the end, there's a 13 part series there, um, which we could even package up into one whole film and you know do it Tales from the Crypt style. Yeah. Um, so there's a few options for that. Uh, we never we wanted to do festivals, I think, um, and but it was it was never it was always at the back of our minds, and it was one of those things that that you would do if you if you felt that there was something you produced which was good enough to do festivals. But I think the biggest thing for us is, again, the money restriction. Because we're making films on such a tiny budget, there actually isn't money to put aside for us to be able to put these films into festivals. So we don't have a budget. Um, our budget's so small that when it comes to making, the, the, it comes to the end of the film, we've pretty much spent everything we've got. <laughs> and so so even finding £40 to, to enter a single festival... It's, it, you think, well, that's that's forty pounds we could probably put into the next film or or what have you. So there is obviously a, a, a limit on what we can afford to do out of our own kind of pockets as well. So if, ideally, we would we would upon releasing a film, say like Sucker Blood, we would look at all of the festivals worldwide where we think that might play well and put it out to it. You know that that would that would be great. But it's just the the money situation to do that. We've actually done The Mother Died when that was completed. We've entered that into probably about ten to fifteen different festivals. That was so that so we've actually done it already in, in one form or another as a test to see, you know, is it a worthwhile thing to do? But even doing that costs us several you know hundred pounds. Um and fallback from that might be that we actually find that we only get picked up for a few, if any, festivals and you know, we aren't there to watch and see the reaction. So really, what what's the point when we can put right. it out to an online online audience? Right. Um, and um, and you know we've got that that obviously Suckerbud you see as an example of one which has steadily grown and grown to um, almost hundred thousand views, and that's just, and that's um, a, that's a form of feedback, right? Audience feedback, the fact that you can at least watch the view count, and yeah, exactly, uh, yeah. even if people don't leave comments, which I'm sure they are, you know, at least the view count lets you know is this thing being picked up? Are people liking this? Oh yeah, I mean every day um, we, I'm sure we all have our Google alerts set so we can see who else has picked things up. So when you get a website like um, you know a website that we respect, like No Film School, or, or uh, last week we were on um, Ain't It Cool News, uh, and uh, we were also this week we were on Film School Rejects. So you know various film blogs um, are picking us up as well, and to, to just to kind of see see that kind of feedback that you're getting from your videos, whether it's through commenting, whether it's just through the view count going up. Um, there, there is that gratification through that that you won't get through festivals that you can't attend, you know, over the other side of the world. So in many respects, you know, that is our kind of like um, festival as such. That is us getting out there, 
to an audience who are, do seem to be enjoying what we're doing on the most parts, which is um, which is the biggest thing. And actually, getting those comments, those individual comments from people saying, "Wow, loved it." You know, this is this is um, you know really inspiring. And I've had emails from people saying that they've been really inspired by the work we've done in the series, and that's the reward enough, really, in many respects, for what we do. Yeah, that's Definitely. huge. I think having the um, obviously having the website there as well gives us a real opportunity to showcase our films, how we want to showcase them and present them alongside lots of other you know secondary material uh you know whether it be making of or you know poster art or you know some of the stuff that you won't see in the film that has been contributed to us from you know some of the talented sort of pre-production folks or anybody involved so i think as ben said it's kind of like the website and our films our digital distribution of the films is our our festival and i think kind of whilst we obviously would you know would like to make uh lots and lots of money from from a film venture at some point so we can go on to make more films I think Bloody Cuts, although important to make some money at some point, has been very much for the love and passion of it at the end of the day. And the rewards out of our experience and the friends we meet and the contacts we make, um, that's actually reward enough at the moment, um, or has been reward enough. It's been really, really good. I'm ending every sentence with that's been really, really good. So <laughs> can you edit that out, John? Because that's really good. <laughs> well, I think this is a good place to transition um, from talking more broadly. You know, my intention on, on this interview is also to give people an insight into what a post-production meeting might sound like uh, as we talk about color grading. And uh, we've had a little bit of emails going back and forth, but we haven't gone too deeply. So maybe yeah. we can get up, people up to speed first on the technical side. How did you guys shoot? What camera did you use? And how did you record the footage out? Um, so we shot on the uh, Ari Alexa. First time we'd done that, we shot Red Epic before. We shot DSLR. We hadn't shot on the Alexa before, and it is our best experience yet. We shot out of that, I believe, I wasn't the cameraman, but I believe we shot ProRes 422 HQ. So we were shooting onto um, S by X, S by S cards, which usually you know associate with Sony cameras, which is what Ari uses, and we were able to take those off of the digital sticks, stick them in our laptops and, and uh, do the DIT there. And then we had a guy who's part of the team called Freddie Smith. He organized all of the footage for us within the new uh, Premiere software. I can't remember what it's called. It's the new, um, uh, no, it's it's not Audition. Audition is the audio one. It's, I can't remember what it's called, but basically it's a ingest, ingesting and kind of DOT management software. So he put it into that. He organized everything. He labeled everything up. He, he neatly put everything into folders, into bins and to what have you. So that was all done in advance for us. And that's which meant that when it came to actually doing the editing itself, there was already an assembly of footage within the edit for us. And that's what you get from someone who's a good assistant editor or a good DIT person. It's someone who has paid attention to the the onset stuff. They, they've taken the notes from the script continuity person and they've made key, keynotes and things on the footage so we can see what the feedback is you know it might be on the day that we said that's the great that's a great take the script con the uh, uh, script advisor uh, continuity person would have made a note of that and passed it on to him and that would have then come through to the edit um so so we all of that then was transferred um on the day onto a, a hard drive and um, we were working off just FireWire 800 and usb2 drives good thing with prores is that as long as you've got a decent Mac and you've got a half decent drive which can run the footage out, that it, it's not too hard, too much hard work on your on your computer. I did a did the early assembly of the edit and I did it all through a little MacBook Air sitting on a train, just running a USB two uh, uh, kind of little portable drive. So 
that's kind of like where we're at now in filmmaking where you can do that so that was that was what we did with that and we recorded it at sea log i mean you can obviously do a better job of explaining what log is but essentially the image was very flattened out on the day we actually viewed it back through a monitor in what's known as rec 709 which is a kind of a tv kind of standard and we used that as our reference point to kind of see you know just how good the footage was looking but we recorded it out all flat so if you to look at the footage in its raw state it looks pretty horrible it's kind of gray and dull and lifeless but it's what you can do in the grade with it which um i know is it's much more... to me it's a very pretty picture yeah, 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 exactly. Well, yeah, <laughs> and um, the great thing—the great thing was with using the Arri was that we had a good, really good system for record for me measuring the light and putting that information into back into the to the camera. So, the one thing I would say about the footage that we've come back with, near on the most part, nearly everything is you know is perfectly exposed, which we'd had issues with that previously, and uh, I think our exposure across this this film, um, hopefully, again in the grade that will. That will make things slightly easier for you. But we've seen just through the Rec 709, you know, basic ProRes LT footage we've been working with. But that's that's worked really well for us. We then went and did a second pickup shoot, or well, a pickup shoot, which the point of that was um, having come back into the edit and having dealt with all the weather conditions meant that we'd not quite got everything we'd wanted. We'd not quite executed the POV scenes in the fashion that we needed. It was rather hurried. It was kind of a bit pointless. It wasn't really delivering in the way that the script had set it out. So we went back and re-recorded that. This time we recorded that because we didn't have the area available to us on um, a Sony F3 camera. Uh, we shot in log as well on that. And, um, that when, when we came back with that footage again, we were quite conscious of it being something that needed to match up. But fortunately, it's a decent camera. Um, and the establishing shots that we managed to pick up with that camera and the POV shots, fortunately, are ones where we don't have to worry about them being... We can stylize the POV shots and the establishing shots are just wide shots, which we think will blend quite well. And again, that's something which um, obviously is for you to do, Patrick, but it's very much something which, you know, it's a great thing with working with that log footage is that you do have that extra kind of area to move within whereas having shot on dslr before you come back with footage which even when you shoot fairly flat with them it's still overly contrasty and you are fairly limited but fortunately i think that with having worked with with good cameras which i i appreciate aren't always cameras that are available to everybody but having worked with those cameras has meant that we've been able to you know execute a, a, a good looking film and the the results hopefully will come through in the final piece yeah, they should because I mean I, I'm you know when I when I teach color grading and and I give talks to people, you know I often often ask people where where do they think the color grade starts and and really it starts well in pre-production, uh, just by you know dressing the set and getting the costumes right and and picking the right location, but then also in the camera. I mean you know color grading starts in the camera, and and the more that you can give uh, anyone you know your colorist properly exposed footage. You know, that's that's two thirds of the game right there. It really is. So I'm, I'm very yeah. excited to hear that you guys were very pleased with what you were seeing out of the camera. Now, when you were in editorial, you were looking at Rec. 709 encoded footage. So did yeah, you yeah. record like dual stream? Did it give you two streams? One that was Rec. 709, one that was the the flat log footage? Or is that something yeah. that you applied like you, you you rendered out the log footage and then came up with your kind of edit, you know, media? Yeah, so part of edit, uh, Freddie's job as the uh, edit assistant was to organise everything for us. As I said, one of the things that he did initially, um, as well as um, having organised all of the raw footage, uh, which was the flat 
ProRes HQ footage out of the camera was he then took that into DaVinci Resolve and applied the Rec. 709 LUT file, which was the point of that was to give us something a bit more in the in the in the edit than just a flattened grey dull image. It, um, having discussed things with you, Patrick, you felt that you, the results that we would get through having something which would be pre-graded to an extent would show show us a lot more. Um, in terms of detail and what was in the image and the last thing we want to do is to use a shot to come back and to find that an extra bit of detail in that shot had come out due to having a proper grade applied which wouldn't have quite been seen in that kind of raw log state so um, you, you recommended having discussed things over email that one of the things that we could do was to drop it in, into the aforementioned DaVinci Resolve and to export that with the Rec. 709 look applied um, which would then mirror what we were playing back through our monitors on the day and we did that, exported out at ProRes, ProRes LT, which is um, a, a kind of more of a proxy, kind of lower lower quality version of the ProRes files that were produced by the camera, um, which would be much more um, easy to work with in the edit, um, but would maintain all of the same file names, which you would be able to to pick up and reference in the um, the the handover files that we gave you for your your kind of uh, grading that you would apply. Um, through all of the uh, the full res log files that you got on your end. Yeah, exactly. And just to get people up to speed, what I'd recommend, and I'm, I'm thrilled that you guys followed through with this as well, because uh, I've had jobs come back to me where we do the grade, everyone's thrilled, they shot flat, and, and you know, everyone just, if they've been working in editorial and looking at the flat footage, you know, the color grade is a shock, you know, I mean, a, a, in a positive way, but it's a shock to them because they're so used to looking at the flat footage. But I've had jobs then come back two weeks later and say, yeah, we were watching it down and we had to sub out a couple shots because we, there was something wrong, eye lines were wrong, or there was a C-stand in the back that we didn't see, and we had to pick alternate yeah. takes, and, and, um, and that's a bit of a killer, and I wanted to make sure you guys didn't go through that. So good, I'm glad yeah. that worked out. Well, it was it was a good bit of advice because it really did help us see, you know, like I was saying, when you have that initial edit you put together, there is that real kind of nerve-wracking um, moment, I think, that well, which kind of lasts for quite a while, really, during the editing process of you know, not knowing really what it is that you've got. You know, you don't really know how good your film is, but to actually have something which looks half-decent to start off with, which is obviously what we saw through the Rec. 709 applied footage, was you know at least it showed promise in what we had to start off with whereas if we'd have been working still probably with dull footage it might have still been as slightly disheartening as to knowing actually what it was we were going to come out with at the end that's cool now uh this is a little bit off topic but you mentioned you know you've worked with red and then you worked with the the re and and you like the r can you talk to a little bit about the difference uh in those two workflows and uh what is it that you you found you liked about the re the one thing that I found working with Red, the workflow obviously takes a lot more consideration because you're working with much higher resolution files. You're working on the most part, well, we were anyway, because we shot on the Red Epic, we shot on 5K and 4K. And you can edit in those if you're using CS 5.5 or CS 6. But they are quite diff. You know, you need a decent machine, really, or you need a machine which is running a Red Rocket card, so you, it can actually handle the playback of the footage and multiple streams of footage. I edited Prey in 4K and 5K, and it took me much longer to edit because the actual, even though I've got a decent iMac, you know, hefty, with hefty RAM in, the actual playback speed and, and the you know the speed of refresh 
by the end it was becoming frustrating so i again we shot on reddit for sucker blood you produce great results like one thing i i found with the the ari camera it produced much much nicer looking footage when it comes to kind of low light um so we were confident when we were shooting that stuff because some of the stuff that we shot which was the the mainly the fireworks based things were all shot pretty much eight to nine o'clock at night um oh, wow. so it was quite it was quite gray and, and dark and it you know it wasn't too far off you know another half an hour and we'd have probably had black skies but fortunately that extra light the the ari you know ari performed so much better at those lower light conditions that we were able to put much back into much more back into the camera and to, to pretty much make it look like it was still day it was incredible i mean you could look up with your eyes at the the you know the set and you could barely make things out and then you'd look at the monitor and the camera would be displaying something which looked you know it was filmed several hours earlier but it was live happening in front of you so that was great and um i i don't think the red would perform quite as well the workflow like i said of the red is uh, it takes much more consideration because you have to go through you know red's own um soft you know you don't have to but one of the recommended things to do is go through red's own software to kind of do your dit and to do your organization of footage and to do your you know any any pre-grading and stuff in there if you want to and that whole process when I did Mother Died and I processed all the, the rushes for Mother Died, it took several days for, for, for me to process the 5K footage into back into ProRes for it to be edited. You don't get that with, that with the Arri because although you're not shooting at 5K and 4K, you're still shooting at just standard HD file size. You are, you're, you've instantly got that footage available to edit with. To edit with, so you're you're walking off set or you're on set even, and you've got the edit there in front of you. That instant instantaneous playback when you're working on films like these where you know it's important that we can see what it is we're getting and for us to be able to kind of work on on machines which you know they they they're pretty much shop bought machines that we own we 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 know we're not big studios we don't have chunky processes behind what we're doing we're we're just working off standard IMAX and things like that so it's for us it's much better for us to be able to handle files which um have got you know a more kind of proportionate file size and, and playback quality to to our computers and the other thing is is that having worked with things like DSLR cameras and worked um with other types of cameras aside from the Red Epic is that by the time you actually get it onto YouTube and it's been compressed and it's in that small window that actually you can't tell a hell of a lot of difference between say shooting on a decent DSLR camera and shooting on the Epic as long as it's lit correctly and you know everything's exposed right and everything's sharp then you know some of that will come back through come out through the grade and that like I said the compression will shrink things down so much that you're actually left with um something which could have been shot on another much much cheaper camera which might have only cost you you know a few a few thousand pounds or less even uh, rather than the 30 or 40 thousand pounds you might spend on your red so for our online audience that we have we're not because we aren't making things for cinema we don't actually need to shoot at things like 4k and 5k so again the, the alexa because it doesn't shoot that large that um definitely played into our hands much more let's wrap it up here since this conversation is about to dive into the specifics of color grading dead man's lake and I'm already running long with this episode. This podcast interview has a dedicated webpage for show notes and comments. Visit TauOfColor.com and let us know if you enjoy this show. If you're interested in Tau's upcoming training on Dead Man's Lake, featuring the Ari Alexa, DaVinci Resolve 9, and the JL Cooper Eclipse Colorist Control Surface, visit training.TauOfColor.com. Once there, you can sign up for the announce list and you'll be the first to know when the training is available. Who knows, maybe I'll even throw a bonus or discount 
just for people who take the time to put themselves on the announce list. This podcast has been brought to you by TauofColor.com and Flanders Scientific. It's been edited by Tom Parrish at TomParrish.com. My name is Patrick Inhofer. Thanks for your time.